Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. Well, tonight we're very pleased to welcome internationally best-selling author Jeffrey Deaver to the store. Deaver's the author of over 30 novels, including the hit Lincoln Rhyme series. He's been awarded the Steel Dagger and Short Story Dagger from the British Crime Writers Association and the Nero Wolf Award. His novels have appeared on bestseller lists all over the world, and we are thrilled to have him tonight to discuss the latest in the Lincoln Rhyme series, The Still Kiss. Please join me in welcoming Jeffrey Deaver. Well, thank you, Michael, and uh, thank you to the Tattered Cover, wonderful independent bookshop, and uh, guests and friends. I have written about 37 novels, um, 80 short stories, a teleplay, a nonfiction law book, a radio play, um, a country western album, uh, various critical uh, types of nonfiction. But there's one thing I have not tried when I write, plagiarism. <laughs> and that's what I'm going to do tonight. Um, to be a bit serious about it, I am um, writing a book about writing. And many authors do this. You may have read Stephen King's wonderful uh, book on writing, which is not only about how he writes, but uh, contains much autobiographical information about him. I found it just fascinating. And I've been compiling um, for this book quotations by other authors people who are far more articulate and insightful than I, uh, but I do attribute them, so probably that isn't technically plagiarism, um, but I do a lot of cut and pasting. I have to digress for just a moment. I teach courses in, in writing, and um, when I talk about um, editing your manuscript and refer to cutting and pasting, there are some people, generally younger, who don't know that that's what we really did when we wrote our first book. <laughs> It involved the magic tape, which you could see through and write on a little bit better. I had, I rewrite so much, I had pages that were that thick. Paste it over, paste it over, paste it over. Anyway, I digress, something I tell my students never to do. What I'm going to do tonight is run through um, uh, probably uh, eight or ten chapters of the book. Don't panic, these are excerpts, you'll be out of here before before sunrise, if any of you <laughs> aspire to the vampiric qualities of life. Um, but whether you are writers, and I know some of you are, and um, whether you are um, aspiring writers or simply fascinated with these miraculous little things we see around us here, um, books, and I know you are because you're here watching me, and not what's going on at that damn debate, right? <laughs> unless you all sneak out early to go see it. Um, you may find these remarks interesting and helpful. Before I forget, begin, however, I have to um, uh, offer two quotations from what I would call devil's advocates. Um, first from Lillian Hellman. If I had to give young writers any advice about writing, I would say, do not listen to writers giving advice about writing. <laughs> 
The second is from Somerset Maugham, who said, There are three simple rules for writing a great novel. Sadly, no one knows what they are. (laughs) With all respect to these fine, if very different, writers, I disagree. I think it is possible to learn the craft of writing. And given a certain desire and the willingness to roll up your sleeves and do a lot of work, you can be a successful author. So I hope my comments tonight, uh, extracted from other authors, will be helpful to you. So we begin. Chapter one in my book, Why Write? Why do we do this crazy thing? William Sapphire said, I write because I enjoy expressing myself, and writing forces me to think more coherently than I do when I'm just shooting my mouth off. Reynolds Price, in a more serious note, I write because it's the only thing I'm really very good at at all. And I've got to stay busy to stay out of trouble, to keep from going crazy, and to keep from dying of depression. Jonathan Safran Foer, why do I write? It's not that I want people to think I'm smart or even that I'm a good writer. I write because I want to end my loneliness. Books make people less alone. That before and everything else, before and after everything else, is what books do. They show us that conversation is possible over distance. James Thurber, I write because it's fun. William Burroughs, as a young child, I wanted to be a writer because writers were rich and famous. They lounged around Singapore in Rangoon, smoking opium in yellow ponji suits. They sniffed cocaine in Mayfair and lived in the native quarter of Tangier, smoking hashish and languidly caressing their pet gazelle. J.R.R. Tolkien. I've claimed that escape is one of the main functions of the fairy stories, such as I write, and since I don't disapprove of that, it's plain that I don't accept the tone of scorn or pity with which escape is now so often used. Why should a man be scorned if, finding himself in prison, he tries to get out and go home? As for myself, why do I write? I can sum it up in one word. Nerd. I was a nerd when I was growing up. A leave-it-to-beaver kind of nerd. I I said that once in an event, and um, pleased to see that I had an audience of of some young people. Um, This uh, young girl came up afterwards and said, leave it to Bieber? I I know a lot of his songs, but I don't know what (laughs) that was about. I had to disillusion her. she, if I had to, at first, I was going to say, ask your parents about it. Then I said, no, ask your grandparents about, <laughs> about it. No, I was a nerd. I had no talent for sports whatsoever, but I was drawn to books and to writing. I knew there was something special about these books. I knew there was something about uh, stories. We've listened to stories for thousands and thousands of years. You know, novels are very, very new in, in uh, culture and society, but storytelling goes back uh, Uh, since the dawn of humankind. And I knew at a young age I wanted to to share stories. I wanted to create stories. I wrote my first novel when I was about uh, 11 uh, years old. It was really a short story, but to me it was a a novel. And I I thought it was a a good thing. Um, 
Think back to when you were very young and on the, the schoolyard. Maybe you were the new kid on the schoolyard, or you were out at recess and you saw a new new kid there, somebody who just moved to town, and you didn't know who on earth that person was, didn't know them from Adam or Eve. And yet you noticed, you looked down and, and saw they were holding a copy of The Hobbit or C.S. Lewis or Ray Bradbury. And you'd kind of walk up slowly and shyly, not making eye contact, and say, hey, how you doing? Good because he or she was just as shy as you were. You said, hey, pretty good book, huh? How'd you like the dragon in chapter three? And their eyes would light up. Suddenly, even though you did not know that person, yes, you did. You knew the important things about them, and you'd made a friend. Books did that. That's why I want to write. All right, so that's chapter one, Why Write? Everybody's got a story for this, but I've shared with you some of the uh, opinions about it. Chapter two, what do we write about if you want to be a writer? Francine Matthews said this, I always heard, write what you know. I disagree. I say, write what you love. You can always research the rest. Stephen King, writers remember everything, especially the hurts. Strip a writer to the buff, point to the scars, and he'll tell you the story of each small one. From the big ones, you get novels. A little talent is a nice thing to have if you want to be a writer, but the only real requirement is the ability to remember every single scar. Meg Cabot, write the kind of story you would like to read. People will give you all sorts of advice about writing, but if you're not writing something you like, they won't like it either. Francine Matthews, again, practical advice on the business of writing, and it is indeed a business. Don't write to fill a gap in the market. It'll be gone by the time you get there. Flannery O'Connor, anybody who's survived his childhood has enough information about life to last the rest of his days. Me, where do I get my ideas? Well, I'll, I'll tell you a story. I was on a panel in England I was the only Yank there. Three British writers were with me. And the person sitting at the head of the table was a cozy writer, very, very famous cozy writer. Uh, You know what cozies are? I think many of you do. It's a soft uh, kind of detective novel. Um, Miss Marple, Hercule Poirot, Georges Simenon. Uh, Wonderful stories. Um, In America, we would have someone like um, Janet Ivanovich. Uh, writing stories with uh, uh, Stephanie Plum. Those would be cozies if her uh, grandmother, Grandma Mazur, didn't want to blow everybody away with the 44 <laughs> Magnum she took to bingo at the church. But they're cozy-ish, let's put it that way. Well, the question was posed to the panel, um, wh- where do you get your ideas? And she answered uh, this, <clears throat> where do I get my ideas? I sit down in my parlor with a cup of tea And I wait for my muse, whose name was, I can't remember, it was either Frederica or Philomena, to sneak up behind me and tap me on the head with her magic wand, and poof, there's a book idea. I laughed. Um, I chortled, really, so it was kind of a mean laugh. It wasn't mean. I thought she was was joking, uh, because it's a stupid idea. But the audience didn't laugh. They they went from adoring gazes at her to... um, uh, pure, vicious hatred at me. I tried to turn the sound into a cough. You know how you do that sometimes? <laughs> Didn't work. And um, uh, she was dead serious. There was a muse. The audience, the British audience, loved muses, apparently. And then the question went to me. Uh, Mr. Deaver, where do you get your ideas? Now, just some advice, if you didn't know it already, in this day and age of the Internet, everything you have ever said 
everything you have ever posted about you gentlemen in those grass skirts drinking five pina coladas that you didn't want to be... Everybody went quiet. So have you all done that? (laughs) Maybe you have. It's all out there on the Internet. So I'm on record as saying where I really get my ideas. And I can't change my tune at this point. I said, well, where do I get my ideas? I sit down in my... um, my uh, den, we don't have parlors per se in America, but I sit down in my den with a beverage. <laughs> it's not tea. And um, I simply close my eyes and think desperately of some idea that will scare the ever living hell out of you, which is what I do. Um, in the beginning of The Steel Kiss, there's a scene in which. Um, the the villain has manipulated an escalator. He's taken charge of an escalator and turned it into a weapon. You are so lucky that we've got stairs here. Um, my goal is to make it, put you all in much better shape so that you will never take an elevator or escalator again. The bad news after you read this book, which is about a man who uses household products as weapons, you'll never heat anything up in a microwave. You'll never use your furnace. Uh, your, your oven is out of commission. Oh, and you'll never drive again either. Um, so, um, but I look for ideas like that. Mickey Spillane said, people don't read books to get to the middle. (laughs) Do we? I don't pick up a 500-page book thinking, I can't wait to get to page 250 and put it down. Um, So I look for ideas that will propel the reader from start to finish, the last um, chapter of the book, nonstop, ideally in one read. And that does take a lot of, uh, a lot of forethought. And I, I do have to say, that's, that's my approach to writing. I want to write a book that is like the TV show 24, that simply moves forward. It doesn't have to take place in quite that compressed time frame, but most of my, do- most of my books are, are quite, uh, uh, are quite uh, concise, quite economical of uh, time frame. Um, The most important thing is to keep in mind that you are writing for your readers. Give them something they want, not something that you like, something that they want. And I've learned that my readers at least, and frankly many writers, want a story that moves forward very quickly. So again, we're talking about chapters from my book. Chapter one, why write? Chapter two, what do we write about? Something that, in my case, that moves forward very quickly. Chapter three, planning the novel. Gustave Flaubert said this. Books aren't made the way babies are made. They're made like pyramids. Um, There's some long-pondered plan, and then great blocks of stone are placed one atop another, and it's back-breaking, sweaty, time-consuming work. Joyce Carol Oates, the first sentence of a novel cannot be written until the last sentence is written. Ernest Hemingway, prose is architecture. It's not interior decoration. For myself... I outline all my books. Um, Steel Kiss is an example, uh, very typical. Outline uh, derived over about eight months, nonstop work, uh, full-time, doing the research too, so I don't work on the outline the entire time. But it is um, a a full-time effort getting the um, structure of the story down. Uh, That outline ended up being about 120 pages. Sometimes they're longer, sometimes they're a bit shorter, but I I make sure that the outline is completely finished before I I write. Well, why? That's insane, you think, right? Would you get on an airplane that had been built like this? The designer calls up uh, Fred's airplane parts company and says, Joe, 
deliver me a bunch of parts and I'm going to try to make an airplane. So he gets this big pile of wings and ailerons, whatever an aileron is, and, and video games like the pilots play in the cockpit and, and, and stuff like that. No, you don't worry about trays and cup holders because the airlines don't give you any food anyway anymore. But, but you, and he just starts putting this stuff together. No, there are engineering diagrams, computer models. When the test pilot gets on the airplane for the first time, he doesn't do this. I'm a Presbyterian, so I probably got that wrong, but you know what I'm saying. He, he, he doesn't say, I hope I make it. He knows he's going to make it. Why should a book be any different? Authors have the responsibility, again, to make the best book they can for their readers, to plan everything out ahead of time, which I do. Um, there are two reasons for this. One is that books are structure as much as they are fine, wrought prose, um, they should be like a, a symphony, uh, a symphonic composition. There are fast moments. There are slow mo uh, moments. Uh, vivace, adagio. There's a big crescendo at the end, the ending of a book. There is a, um, a coda at the end, kind of a reconciliation, a quiet reconciliation of all, all the plots. Um, symphonies excite us. I don't listen to Schoenberg. I, I don't listen to John Cage. I listen to Mozart. I listen to Beethoven. And I think more people do. I think that resonates with us. I think books should do that as well. Classic structure. Outlines let me do that. There's a second reason outlines are important. You don't have to raise your hand, but simply ask yourself this. Have I ever read a book that should not be written? Yes. I guarantee I'll answer for you. Um, Imagine this scenario. You come up with an idea for a first chapter that is just bang up, top notch, exciting. You sit down and you write that without knowing where you're going, but you write a really good first chapter. And then maybe you write a really good second chapter. And then you're not quite sure where it's going, but the third chapter is pretty decent. And then the fourth is okay. And then the fifth, bang, brick wall. And you're not sure what on earth you're going to do. Not to say it's not a great first chapter. Probably is. But you think, well, maybe let me think about it. And suddenly you realize, well, I don't know what to do for the middle of the book, the infamous middle of the book. And you have no idea what the ending is going to be at this point. At that point, you have two choices. One is the morally honest choice, the uh, intellectually courageous decision, throw it out. Don't save chapter three, which is an okay chapter three, because if you wrote an okay or good chapter three for a bad book, you can write a really good chapter three for a good book. Throw it all out and start over. Or you can take the lazy person's approach. Keep those 300 pages of prose that you've already written, tack on and um, middle where nothing happens, add a deus ex machina ending where readers are going to say, oh, give me a break. This couldn't possibly happen. We, we never met the killer. Where's he coming from? Walking out of a closet now? That's ridiculous. And you have wasted your time. You've wasted your reader's time, which is a far more grievous sin. If, however, you start outlining first, you spend a month, two, on the outline, you get 30 pages of outline, and you come to the part where you see... Well, there's no middle here. There's no end. Why? Because it's a stupid idea for a book. It may be a wonderful opening chapter, but that's an exercise in writing. That's not a book. Crumple up 30 pages of outline and start over. See how easy that is? I speak from experience. I have done both of those. It's far easier to throw out an outline, of which I have discarded many, 
because the, I could, it was clear it wasn't going anywhere, but much easier to discard that than it is the book. I do have to add now, in fairness, uh, since I'm quoting other authors, uh, George R. R. Martin, author of the wonderful Game of Thrones series, said this, and I, I, I have to paraphrase because I don't don't recall, but um, he said in exact opposition to both Flaubert, and since I can put myself in that category, and me, Martin said, um, writing a book is not architecture. It's gardening. You plant the seed and have a rough idea of what is going to flower, and you nurture it, and you water it, and you give it sunlight, and you may trim it, but it's not really your creation. It's something that comes from somewhere else. I disagree. Uh, we cannot argue with Martin's success, but there's nothing more subjective than writing. I am comfortable doing an outline, and I firmly recommend it if you want to uh, proceed having a career at this crazy business. Okay, so what we've done so far is talk about why to write, uh, where do we get our ideas, planning the novel. Now chapter four is writing the novel itself. Nathaniel Hawthorne said this, a writer's words should dissolve into pure thought meaning that you don't look at a, a paragraph an author has written and say, oh, the, the, that, that is pyrotechnic writing. I get a chill reading that wonderful style. Oh, what did it mean? <laughs> the words should vanish, and the idea that the author is trying to convey should be absorbed um, in the reader's mind. Uh, Stephen King, some practical advice. Any word you have to hunt for in a thesaurus is the wrong word. Mark Twain, the difference between the almost right word and the right word is the difference between lightning and lightning bug. <laughs> From the inimitable literary thinker, Dr. Seuss, it has often been said there's so much to be read, you can never cram all those words in your head. So the writer who breeds more words than he needs is making a chore for the reader who reads. That's why my belief is, the briefer the brief is, the greater the sigh of the reader's relief is. And that's why your books have such power and strength. You publish with shorth. Shorth is better than length. Stephen King. The road to hell is paved with adverbs. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway. As a novelist, if you want to send a message, go to Western Union. <laughs> now we have a little gender divide here as well, because I have said that in uh, various events, and people have, uh, generally younger people, have said, what's Western Union? <laughs> so I said, if Hemingway were alive now, okay, he would say, if you want to send a message, send a tweet, put it on Facebook, or, um, or um, put it on a blog post. Mark Twain, a successful book is not made of what is in it. It's made of what is left out. Richard Price, don't write about the horrors of war. Write about a child's sock burning in the middle of the road. Stephen King, I believe that the first draft of a book, even a long one, should take no more than three months. Any longer than that, and for me at least, the story begins to take on an odd foreign feel, rather like a dispatch from the Romanian Department of Public Affairs, or something broadcast on high, wave, uh, on high band short wave during a period of severe sunspot activity. 
For me, once the outline is done, I sit down and write the book. But because I know where the book is going, I can write very quickly. I can do 135,000 words, uh, which is the length of my first drafts generally, in about two months. I can do that for as long as I can uh, sit in a chair, which in these advancing years is not quite as long as it used to be. Um, I may write the beginning at the end. I could write the end at the beginning. I know where the story is going to go. I may wake up and it's a beautiful day. The sun is shining, birds are singing, and I look at my outline. And that day, I guess I'm supposed to write a scene about a vicious murder, and I just don't feel like it. It's a nice day. We all have those days, right? Nobody's responding. What, you mean you want to viciously murder somebody every day, even when it's nice? I reserve the writing those scenes for when, you know, I'm a writer. We like any distraction, anything to keep us from writing. Therefore, cable TV is very important. So I, I, I flip my TV on. It, do, it doesn't work. I'm not going to mention Time Warner Cable by name. But, but so, so um, I call the cable company and say, please, you have to get out here and fix this. I'm desperate. If I, if you're, I don't get cable, I have to write. I, I don't want that. So they say, well, we'll be there at 8 tomorrow morning, 8 in the morning. I'm a writer. I don't wake up for anybody except anybody who can give me distractions to keep me from writing. So, okay, wake up at 7.30. He doesn't show up. He doesn't show up at 9, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4. He finally shows up, and uh, he looks at the cable box and says, oh, you got the old XYZ cable box. This won't work. I've got to go back for another part. I'll come back tomorrow. Those are the days I want to kill somebody viciously. (laughs) And guess what the name of the victim is and what cable company he works for. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? You can, you can create the prose very, very quickly. Bang it out because you know where it's going to go. I, I will say this, too. Because we're talking, this is Chapter 4, about writing the book itself. Um, don't try to be something you're not. Good lesson in life, right? Especially true when you're writing. I am a very pedestrian writer. My prose, and I think many of you have read my books, the prose is what I would call meat and potatoes prose, 25-cent prose, not $5 or $10 prose, because I, for one thing, was trained as a journalism, but also I kind of grew up that way. I grew up reading nuts and bolts books, Uh, people like um, uh, Agatha Christie, um, uh, uh, Conan Doyle, and those books are not really stylistically brilliant books. They're not like Cormac McCarthy or Don DeLillo or um, Jonathan Franzen or or, uh, Annie Proulx, who are wonderful stylists um, or or poets, but they're very, you know, very functional writers, and I think that's, that's important. As Nathaniel Hawthorne said, words should dissolve into pure thought, but occasionally I've gotten into my head, it makes me mad. I think, oh, I wish I were a better writer, better stylist. So I will try to emulate someone to disastrous results. Um, You have learned your writing style by eighth grade. You're going to learn more words. You're going to be more intelligent. You're going to be more discerning over the years. But your writing style is pretty much set by the time you're a freshman or sophomore in high school. So don't try to be something you're not. Bang out the, the first draft And now we come to chapter five, editing and revising. Ernest Hemingway, excuse me, Ernest Hemingway, there are no great writers. There are only great rewriters. Elmore Leonard, if it sounds like writing, I rewrite it. (laughs) Stephen King, when your story is ready for rewrite, cut it to the bone. Get rid of every ounce of excess fat. This is going to hurt. 
Revising a story down to its bare essentials is always somewhat like murdering children, but it must be done. You know, that's Stephen King. I like to think he was referring to cutting the book, but (laughs) did I mention it's Stephen King? For myself, I rewrite uh, 50 times, uh, banging out those pages very, very quickly. Um, The 130-some-odd thousand-word manuscript is two things. One, it's too long, and it's very badly written because I banged it out very quickly. Not to despair at all, you uh, should recognize that there are faults, and you simply sit down and rewrite. 50 rewrites. I'm excessive about that, I admit, as I am with my outlining, but um, that's just the way it is. That's what works for me. I do half of those rewrites on the computer because it's very easy then to globally search and replace if you want to change a character's name. Um, you don't have to look for it on the p- printed manuscript, uh, but be, a, be, be rather careful about, uh, about that. Um, let's say you have a, a, a character named... Um, uh, Frank, and you um, say, oh, that's a that's a name I don't like. It's too common. I'm going to uh, change it to uh, uh, Harry, and so you know, type it in. So Frank becomes Harry all the way all the way through. That's fine, um, but you have to be kind of careful because um, think back to Gone with the Wind, and remember that famous line, "Harry, my dear, I don't give a damn." Um, Computers can outsmart us, so just be careful when you do that search and replace thing. You may want to change chapters. You may want to cut out a whole thing. Computers are wonderful for that, but screen reading is very different from paper reading. I I, I do not believe uh, that this is anecdotal by any means because I will have read um, a paragraph 50, 60, 100 times on the screen then when I print the book out to do the last 50 or last 25 edits on paper, I see things I miss. It happens. And I don't mean just typos, although that's true too. I mean conceptual problems. Word repetition, that is not such good style. You, you don't want to repeat the same word over again too close to it, too close to itself. Um, when you print it out in paper, you see those, uh, see those uh, uh, mistakes. And you absolutely have to do that. In the same way that reading an ebook is a different experience from reading a paper book. They're both valid. I read a lot of um, ebooks. I was on the flying in today from Atlanta reading an ebook. Um, uh, I probably would prefer a paper book. Uh, I get more out of it that way. I like the experience, but it's reality. Ebooks are with us and they're very helpful and good for some things. But edit your final drafts. On paper. All right, chapter six, um, writer's block. And don't worry, I'm not looking to see if my Hollywood agent is called and he's more interesting than you are. I'm simply checking the, the time. Um, have you ever, uh, you know, anybody here have, have kids and you say something like, well, we're going to turn clockwise now? What's that? <laughs> What's that? No, digital wise, that's what they understand. I'm going to talk now about everyone's favorite writer's block. And this is a a, a quotation, but I'm not going to give you the writer at first. You've got to see if you can figure this one out for writer's block. It. It was. It was a. It was a dark. It was a dark and stormy. It was a dark and stormy night. Good writing is hard work. Who said that? Snoopy, Charles Schultz. Snoopy the, um, the Beagle with Woodstock, his 
muse sitting on his shoulder. Uh, Jack London, you can't wait for inspiration. You have to go after it with a club. (laughs) Terry Pratchett, there's no such thing as writer's block. That was invented by people in California who can't write. (laughs) Douglas Adams, I love deadlines. I like the whooshing noise they make as they go by. Larry Kahaner, I don't believe in writer's block. Do doctors have doctor's block? Do plumbers have plumber's block? No, we all have days when we don't feel like going to work, but why do writers turn it into something so damn special by giving it a faintly romantic name? For me, I agree with all of those. There is no such thing as writer's block, but there is idea block. And if you come up with an idea and start your outline, as I'm telling you, you all should do, you may very well find out that you get to a certain point, and there really is not going to be a, um, a resolution to that story. Now, when I'm doing my outline, I may come to that middle part of the book, and I'll have the post-it up that says, something important has to happen here. But you don't know what it is. Well, don't give up quite so quickly. Jump three-quarters of the way through the middle of the book and say, ah, murder here. Clue to the murder earlier in the book, another post-it note. That may inspire you to go back to that middle part. Uh, You may have an inspiration for the end of the book and put a post-it note there saying, turns out the butler did it. Okay, I need a butler. Okay, I'll introduce somebody who's a butler, but we don't know he's a butler, but he's very good at polishing silver. So that's a clue that he might be a butler. And, uh, you know, you, you come up with ideas that may fill in the book, but may not. And if, in fact, you are um, uh, stymied, that's a book that gets to be thrown out. But if you think it's a pretty good idea, you can work through that block. But it's an idea block. It's not a writing block. If you have the outline done, you can write a book. Everybody in here can do that. Um, Okay, so we've been talking about the structure of writing a book, revising it, uh, dealing with writer's block. Now we have uh, Chapter 7, Critics and Rejection. Sebastian Junger, I wrote my first novel in seventh grade, longhand in a green composition notebook. My teacher read it aloud to the class, page after page. No wonder I didn't have any friends. (laughs) Neil Gaiman, remember, when someone tells you that something in one of your books doesn't work, he is almost always right. When he tells you how to fix it, he's almost always wrong. David Mitchell, if you, show, if you show someone something you've written, what you're doing is giving them a sharpened stake, lying down in your coffin and saying, whenever you're ready. <laughs> Saul Bellow, I discovered that rejections are not altogether a bad thing. They teach a writer to rely on his own judgment and to say in his heart of hearts, to hell with you. For myself, I have had hundreds and hundreds of rejections, the worst being, I think, when I got back a manuscript in a self-addressed stamped envelope, which you as writers or some of you as writers are very familiar with. You send that to the publisher with your manuscript in an envelope as a courtesy so they can send you back either a bag of gold uh, and a contract or your manuscript. And I opened it up, and my manuscript had been dropped on the floor. There were footprints all over it, cigarette butts, because that was the day when you could... um, you could still smoke in the office. Um, I, I took it with a grain of salt, kept my head down, and kept writing. And that's the trick. Remember, rejection is a speed bump. It is not a brick wall. Uh, if you want to write, you can write. And what did Saul Bellow say? To hell with you. I'm going to keep at it. Chapter 8, 
I think after all this angst and drama, we need a humorous interlude. Famous rejection letters. I'm sorry, Mr. Kipling, you just don't know how to use the English language. Your poems are quite as remarkable for defects as for beauties and are generally devoid of pure poetical qualities. To Emily Dickinson. It would be an extremely rotten taste to say nothing of being horribly cruel should we want to publish this novel, Mr. Hemingway. Overwhelmingly nauseating, even to an enlightened Freudian, the whole thing is an unsure cross between hideous reality and improbable fantasy. It often becomes a wild, neurotic daydream. I recommend that this manuscript be buried under a rock for a thousand years. Nabokov's Lolita. I'm sorry, it is impossible to sell animal stories in the United States. Animal Farm by George Orwell. This book will set publishing back 25 years. Deer Park, Norman Mailer. Uh, The author of this book is beyond psychiatric help, J.G. Ballard. For your own sake, sir, I beg, do not publish this novel, D.H. Lawrence, Lady Chatterley's Lover. You'd have a decent book, sir, if you got rid of this Gatsby character. (laughs) And my favorite of all time, first, I must ask, does it have to be a whale? (laughs) Yes, indeed. Herman Melville got some rejection as well. Um, Well, we're going to jump to chapter 10 now, the the last chapter in the the book. And this is sort of the conclusion, the joy of writing. Truman Capote said this, To me, the greatest pleasure of writing is not what it's about, but the music the words make. Ray Bradbury said, Writing? Writing? I've never worked a day in my life. The joy of putting words on paper has propelled me from day to day and year to year. And Julie Meyerson said this, and it's a wonderful conclusion. Writing gives me such enormous pleasure, and I'm a much happier person when I do it. Writing feels like something I simply could not live without. It's a joyous thing. I feel lucky to be paid to do it, certainly, but even if I'd never been published, I think I would still and always be writing. Now, these are just a fraction of the thoughts that writers have shared about uh, the craft of telling stories. Don't we see how varied they are, how varied their stories are, how separated in time, geography, sensibilities, and style they are, the mediums they've worked in. But, we, but stepping back, I think we can see one thing they all have in common, and that's the passionate desire to reach into the hearts and minds of readers, make them laugh, make them cry, make them scream in terror, Make them maybe better understand the mad world in which we live. And in doing so, make our time here on Earth um, a little bit saner, a little bit richer, and not the least, a little bit more fun. And for the record, you can quote me on that. (laughs) Now, what I'd like to do is turn the uh, program over to uh, questions. I think uh, we've got a little time for some questions, don't we? Okay, thank you, Michael. And I'll talk about... uh, uh, Anything you want, uh, ex- except when I uh, announce my vi- bid for the presidency. That's going to be at a different <laughs> press conference. Last thing in the world I would want to do this year, frankly. But uh, yeah, yes, sir. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that law book that you wrote? As you may have gathered from my comments about writing fiction, I'm a bit of a left-brained uh, kind of person. 
certainly there's inspiration involved. And, and just as an, a brief aside, in the um, outlining process, I don't want you to think that that is um, purely mechanical. I will have a, a scene, for instance, where I say Lincoln Rhyme in chapter, chapter 7 discovers clue A, discovers fingerprint A. That's all the outline says. I then close my eyes and step into Lincoln's mind and have to come up with something clever. So it's inspirational, certainly. But I, I definitely have a, a, a part of me that uh, likes uh, uh, analytical thinking. So the, the, the book I wrote was the uh, – I mean, I've written law review articles and other uh, articles, but the book was called The Complete Law School Companion. And it was a guide to, to law school, still in print after about uh, 30 – oh, my gosh, 30 or 40 years now – because if anyone, I, I, I know some of you, and I think there are some, some attorneys here, um, law school is really quite disjointed. You, you learn um, from cases, studying uh, prior cases, um, in a very Rubik's Cube sort of fashion. Things don't really necessarily fit together. There are uh, cases here, cases there, subjects that may interrelate and may not. Uh, you might write a paper for one class. You have to take a, a, a test on another class. And I discovered, I have to say, I did very, uh, uh, I was a very mediocre student until I went to law school. And out of desperation, uh, because you're up against some really smart people, I decided I needed to be methodical about learning the law. And so I developed a system of outlining, very much like what I described. And uh, so that's what I wrote the uh, book about. It's been very, very popular, and it's been extremely helpful to a number of people, including a fair number of folks who said after they read it, they said, I don't want to go into law. <laughs> I feel I did a, 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 great, a great service. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, over there, please. Yeah, the question was, was uh, Lincoln Rhyme composed after a uh, real person? Uh, no, uh, Lincoln, um, and I should back up, those of you are talking like everybody knows everything. You may just have wandered in, except tonight it would not be to get out of the beautiful weather. Maybe you heard some disturbance down here and thought we were going to have the debate later on, up on a big screen TV. Lincoln Rhyme is my hero from the Bone Collector series. This is the, I think, 12th book, maybe 11th or 12th book in the, the series, The Steel Kiss. And he's a forensic scientist, but he's a um, civilian. He's a, a quadriplegic, no longer able to work for the police department in New York City. But uh, he, like all my characters, I created from whole cloth. And I'll tell you very briefly why I created him. There's a, a joke in Hollywood that uh, they don't necessarily get, as often happens in Hollywood. And the joke goes like this. There's a producer... And what he wants is a property. A property is what they, they call books or uh, scripts or story ideas that has been wildly successful in the past, made a huge amount of money in the past, and has never been seen before. <laughs> um, and yet there's some truth to that. And, it, and that's why we see the sequels, of course, bigger, better, uglier, louder, mostly. Well, I... Um, I do adhere to that rule a bit. I write a type of book that I've, you've kind of gathered from my, my remarks, very tight-paced thriller, lots of twists and turns, surprises, some esoteric information that I find kind of interesting. All my books fall into that formula. But I need to do something different about it to make it interesting for you, the readers. So I was thinking, I think I'd just seen a, um, a thriller movie. 
and you know, we love thriller movies. We love, they're like candy or popcorn. Nothing wrong with that. A good Hollywood thriller. And I think I was watching the scene where uh, it wasn't this, but this was a scene from one of the Mission Impossible films where Tom Cruise meets the bad guy. And the bad guy was one of those great stars, a great actor doing his villain turn, as they often do. You know, Jeremy Irons comes back as a bad guy, and he, you know, he's a wonderful Shakespearean actor, but he does the bad thing. Christoph Valls was just in, uh, he, he was a bad guy in uh, some recent, uh, I think, superhero movie. But this was Philip Seymour Hoffman playing the bad guy in Mission Impossible. And Tom Cruise is fighting Philip Seymour Hoffman. Now, Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, who sadly we lost a few years ago, but one of the most breathtaking actor I think we've seen, seen for years, fighting with Tom Cruise. Now, really, is, is there any doubt in anybody's mind that Tom Cruise, at some point in this battle, where he is being defeated by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who seems to be picking him up and throwing him into a lot of glass uh, cases, you know, if you fight the hero, you got to throw him into glass, glass shattering everywhere. Philip Seymour Hoffman, who may or may not have been in particularly good physical shape, certainly was a bit heavy, but, who you knows, picking up Tom Cruise, flinging him, in, flinging him into uh, glass. Was there any doubt in anybody's mind that at some point Tom Cruise was going to find the gun he had hidden or um, maybe be stunned in the head and remember, oh, at age seven, my father taught me how to kickbox, and that was a repressed memory. And now he does the kung fu thing, and he beats Philip Seymour Hoffman in some completely improbable way. And I thought, oh, been there, done that. Why even bother to sit through the end of the movie? So I wanted to create a villain that was not able to have a, a, a skills at karate or shoot better, who had to outthink the villain, make it an intellectual chess match uh, of um, good versus evil. And so I created a, a character who could not physically uh, could not physically move. And I never thought he'd be as popular as he uh, as he became. But um, he certainly has uh, has caught on with people. Any other uh, thoughts? Yes. Sir. What authors or authors do I like to read? Uh, the uh, uh, And thank you for making that plural, because occasionally I get the question, like, what's your favorite movie? What's your favorite author? And they're just our favorite well, composer. Yeah. <laughs> um, among American uh, crime authors, Michael Connolly I love, Harlan Coben, Dennis Lehane, John Gilstrap, a wonderful writer, uh, Kathy Reichs, um, uh, J.A. Jantz. Is a great writer. Um, England, um, I like uh, Val McDermott, Peter Robinson, uh, Ian Rankin, uh, and, and the classics too. Agatha Christie and and uh, Conan Doyle. I still go back to uh, still go back to those. I like Edgar Allan Poe here. A great Italian writer, uh, Gianrico Carofilio, now being published uh, in uh, in America. Uh, Georges Simenon, the French writer, I like a like a great deal. Um, I read a lot of nonfiction too. I like David McCulloch a great deal. Uh, Eric Larson, of course. Yeah, but uh, sadly, if you read about the uh, author in North Carolina who's killed when his uh, bedside table collapsed under the weight of books and crushed him to death, that'll be me because I, I do a book a year, about four short stories a year, sometimes two books a year. And I read a lot of research, but I don't get the chance to read as much fiction as I would, uh, as I would like. Any other questions? Sure, we'll take one more. Catherine Dance. I mean, I love how that kind of came about, but there's that kind of crossover between her and 
Yeah, the, the question was about Catherine Dance. Catherine Dance is the protagonist of my second series set out in California. And uh, she was a, uh, I guess I call it a calculated decision on my part. She is a... Uh, um, an interrogation expert working for the California Bureau of Investigation. And uh, I introduced her in The Cold Moon, which was a Lincoln Rhyme novel, with the possible intent of breaking her off, giving her her own series. And so uh, she and Lincoln uh, work together to solve a crime. They are diametrically opposed of um, f- crime-solving uh, 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 skills. He is, a, of course, a forensic scientist, distrusts people and what they say. She's very skeptical of forensics, which can be uh, can lie, of course, and um, can be planted. And she believes the human mind. She can get to the inside of that. Uh, the Cold Moon did well, and people responded well to her. So she's back, uh, most recently in Solitude Creek last year. And... Um, She'll be back in a couple of a couple of years. I'm working on another, two other books at the uh, at the moment now. But thank you for your thoughts on her. Um, all right, folks. Well, I guess um, I, I I guess I, I myself can. Oh, we have one more back there, please. Sure. Uh, the question was my uh, short stories, which I love writing. Is it the same process? It is. Yes, I do an outline. Uh, much shorter outline, of course, and then I sit down and write write it quickly and do my revision. I will add this to potential writers out there. Um, apples and oranges, short stories and novels, two entirely different things. Uh, they aim for a very different uh, tone, very different sensibility. So um, don't get the idea that if you want to start writing novels, you should start with short stories. I know Wonderful novelists, brilliant novelists who are afraid of short stories. They might or might not do very well with them. And short story writers who publish one or two uh, short stories a month and yet don't go near novels. A very different uh, set of content. The mechanics is the same, but the context is different. Short story, from my, uh, from my perspective, basically being um, uh, it's, it's all about the twist, that's it exclusively. Everything else is sacrificed for the twist. Character development, atmosphere. Uh, you can write. Uh, I wrote a uh, short story that was written. Uh, in, it's the form of a letter on death row to Nikita Khrushchev. Now, that's not going to be a novel under any circumstances, but it still had a twist. It had a, quite a twist at the end. I, I don't know when that will be published sometime this year. So, uh, okay, well, I know my books are full of uh, carnage and violence and bloodshed, but I suggest we adjourn now so we can put on the tube and watch the carnage and chaos and bloodshed of tonight. I guess uh, thank you all so much. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.